Marvelites, and welcome. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale July 28th, 2021. I am Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am Tucker Marcus. Yeah, welcome to episode 160, Tucker. It is a wow. landmark here in the hallowed halls of Marvel's Pull List podcast. Look at those issue number 160s we stand side by side with. I know. Millie the Model 160, one of my favorite comics ever. I love like everything about the old Millie books. And, oh, same. And, uh, man, all of those, so great. Truly same. We also get uh, Amazing Spider-Man 160. We got an appearance of the Spider-Mobile on the cover. That's vroom, always vroom. awesome. In the ranking of Marvel vehicles. Oh, yeah. Like if you had your druthers and could take one, what would you take? Would you take Punisher's battle van? That's what I was about to say. The van. Which is like the creepiest one of them all for <laughs> yeah. a number of reasons. But I would want to make sure it's a paneled van. <laughs> Do you have one? Thanos copter. Come on. Thanos copter is truly the mark of perfection. I love a good shield hover car. Classic. Yeah. I love the fantastic cars, the various different vehicles that the FF had, uh, the bathtub looking one. and It's funny you mentioned that because I flashed back to a conversation. I believe it was at one of the Marvel creative retreats and... Dan Slott was like waxing lyrical on all the micro differences between the, the Fantastic Cars and like which issues they were in. I mean, of course, this is Dan Slott we're talking about, but that was like a, a great memory. Yeah, I was very clear because the, the tub <laughs> one, I don't know if it's exactly a Fantastic Car or which version of it is. And of course, you have the Pogo plane. Like, I do not want to offend <laughs> Fantastic Four writer Dan Slott, whose work we will be talking about later in this episode, because we are going to tell you all about the brand new Marvel Comics out this week. We're going to give our picks three ones that we just absolutely loved. Uh, then we're going to give out some awards. Tucker will tell us what weekly award we are giving out to all the other books. We're going to tell you about the collections on sale, new books hitting Marvel Unlimited, and of course, getting into a big reading club. This one is a lot of fun. Our reading club this week is with Dwight Stahl from Hasbro and the Marvel Legends team talking about the trial of Galactus, a whole bunch of issues from Fantastic Four. We'll get into that a little bit later. All right now, let's dive into our first pick of the week, Amazing Fantasy number one. It's a new launch. It's a limited series, story and art by Kari Andrews, whole kit and caboodle, lettering by VCs Joe Sabino, um, but Kari is an incredible artistic force, wonderful storyteller. It's really weird, this book. And like I say that in the best possible way, the cover, it evokes classic old school, like science fiction, you know, little paperbacks. Um, and we get into things and you open up and the, the first page is 1943, World War II. And you see battleships and Captain America with troops and, and sort of conversations and like everything blows up. And then you get the thing that I know, Tucker, you absolutely love the big two page widescreen title page oh yeah that's so good it feels cinematic in a way and it's fittingly called arrival we come back and we started and captain america was on this boat and he was like clean shaven and his classic captain america look but when we find him he is washing up on a beach and most of his captain america outfit is torn to shreds he's bearded his hair is long he still has a shield but he's like kind of confused and what's going on. And then it just like sort of gets wilder from there and with dragons and, you know, shifting points of view. Cause then we go over to the Soviet union in the 1980s and we see a young Natasha Romanov training in the red room and, and trying to escape from the red room and all this other stuff. And we shift again and we get a Spider-Man story. And it's one of those things where I was delightfully surprised and didn't know the full scope of what the title was. I, I had heard a little bit about it internally, but they're surprises and it's like twists and turns and some really fun stuff. And like a bunch of moments, particularly towards the end where I was like, oh man, is that what this book is? Because I'm super into it 100%. Now we jump over to another pick. Cable number 12 written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto and 
Letters by VCs Joe Sabino. This is the reckoning issue. This is one that we've been thinking of for a while. We've been looking forward to. And that is a reckoning between young cable and sort of older classic cable. As classic cable re-enters the fray, this is where it all goes down. And uh, of course, it's brought to you by two of the masters at Marvel Comics, Jerry and Phil. And who is going to be the villain in a story like this? Well, you know it's got to be Strife. As if there wasn't enough cable wild, time travely, weird, great, awesome stuff, you gotta add strife in there. It sort of feels, it's like delightfully complicated, you know, because I dare anyone to like describe the complete history and like journey that each one of these characters has been on in relation to like just the standard Marvel timeline, but also in relation to each other. It's like Marvel Comics at its most Marvel Comics, and I love that. But this story, one, I think it draws lines and makes it very clear and it's easy for anybody to read. But also, I think it utilizes that history as ammunition instead of allowing it to be weighed down. And it's really, really excellent. Not only do we get that, though, we also get Jerry Duggan writing Deadpool in here. There's a moment in this issue which made me laugh out loud. There's a really tender, sweet moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> where like Young Cable is having this conversation with Esme and they're like, it's really sweet and tender and wonderful. And in the background, Deadpool is lopping off ahead of one of these demons. And I could just go to ask Jerry and Phil like, all right, who did this? Which which yeah, of yeah, you yeah. did this? Because I that's the beauty of this, the pairing between these two. It could be Phil drawing Deadpool in the background and then Jerry seeing it in the art and adding a word balloon. Or it could be Jerry saying to Phil, all right, I need you to draw Deadpool just slightly in the background here so I could have him yelling, hey, what am I doing over here? Because he doesn't belong. And it's so funny. It's so good. You're so right. And that, that like gets, it's such a simple joke. And the simplicity of that joke is what makes it so great. When it all comes down to it, the character moments land, the emotion lands, whether we're talking about between Young Cable, Old Cable, Esme, Scott, Gene, whoever's involved, the moments are right down to earth and they just are so well done. What else did we expect? Of course, we're going to get a great comic. Yeah. All right. Last of our three picks of the week is Beta Ray Bill number five. Beta Ray Bill is an alien, a Corbinite who challenged Thor. He was cybernetically enhanced. He was worthy enough to lift Mjolnir, became a sort of godly powered superhero, worked alongside the Asgardians, eventually was given his own hammer and his own power from Odin and has been an ally to Asgardians for many, many years. And this has just been about a very personal but action-packed, hilarious, sad, sweet journey of Bill trying to like connect back to who he was before he was turned into an instrument of destruction. And this last issue is Beta Ray Bill versus Surtur, the like hundred foot tall demon of Muspelheim. And it is awesome. It is written and drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson, colors beautifully done by Mike Spicer, letters by VCs Joe Sabino alongside Daniel Warren Johnson. It's so wonderfully done. It is sort of the pinnacle of action comics to me. Well, you know, like that, like big, punchy, throwdown action comics because there's so much heart in the middle of it. Daniel in the letters pages, you know, gives major credit to Walt Simonson, Walt creating Beta Ray Bill. But you also see the DNA of Walt Simonson's storytelling in this book but Daniel, he's completely different in so many ways. He's obviously influenced by manga and by wrestling and by American comics and all these different things. And, and the um, sense of motion that he conveys throughout this book is among the best that we have at Marvel. It's one of the best fight books we've put out in a very long time. It's also got emotional bits in here as Bill's ship Scuttlebutt is trying to help him and obviously is very connected to him. And if you're a fan of Scourge, there's some great Scourge moments in here, like both funny but sweet and Pip the Troll in here. I know people are going to be hyped for Pip the Troll. They're fighting in hell over a sword. It is everything you should want out of your comic books. Absolutely. 
that's what we have for our picks this week. Now we are diving into every single fresh floppy heading your way. And I was thinking about what award we'd be given out today. And you know what I thought? July 28th. Whose birthday is on July 28th? American news journalist Scott Pelley. So today we're handing out the Scott Pelley Award of Excellence. How about we, we, we make it a little bit simpler? The Polis Pelley. Oh, yeah. I love it. The Polis Pelley Award for Amazing Spider-Man number 71, which is the book we're kicking it off, by the way, goes to the name Federico. And that is because this book has art by Federico's Vicentini and Sabatini. That's right. Federico Vicentini with Federico Sabatini. Those are the artists on this book. This is just great. Knockdown, drag out, spidey fight scene, artistic excellence that we get in this. What it really is and what it feels like is this big boiling pot of basically all of your favorite Spidey villains. They're all in here. They're all getting involved. And you see that right from page number one. You see Spidey amidst this crazy chaos of the Lizard, of Shocker, of Craven. There's so many people in here. And that's really just the beginning. Where we go from there is more Spidey rogues gallery goodness. And uh, look, there's only a few issues left and there's a lot at stake. Yes, indeed. Uh, also at stake is kind of the universe in Avengers Mech Strike number five. This is a big throwdown with the Avengers and their giant mech suits versus Kang. And if you're reading the story, Kang has won. It's over. Uh, and it's been great. It's been wonderful. See you later, Avengers. He's already killed Black Panther. But this issue picks up with a lot of those threads. Uh, I will give my... Pelly Polist Award to <laughs> to Eternity, the sentient embodiment of the universe who shows up here and basically is like, this is not going to happen. I've got something to say about it all. Here we go. But if you are craving a Kang story, this one is terrific. Oh, yeah. Uh, next up, we have Black Cat number eight. I think writer Jed McKay is one of the best going right now. But paired with CF Via, we get an excellent, you know, classic what we've come to expect sort of heist puzzle box type story here where we land though leaves me so excited for issue number nine because it's going to bring in a character that I adore that is one of if not the best I don't want to spoil too much Marvel creations of the last several years at least and I'll stop it there but so much fun in this book and it all continues here. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up the Black Knight Curse of the Ebony Blade limited series with number five this week. I'm going to give my Pelipolist award to destroying misogynists uh, <laughs> because that's what Black Knight Dane Whitman does here. He turns ignorance and misogyny from his cousin and turns it into a weapon and beats his ass with it, which I liked. And we, we say that at the end of this issue, more Black Knight to come this year. So if you want to get in on who and what the Black Knight is, this is a perfect series to do it. Oh, yeah. And now we are going on to Black Widow number nine, which stars, of course, the all-star superhero Nat, but also right alongside her, Yelena Belova, I just love how immediate this story feels at every single turn. It doesn't waste any time, doesn't waste a single page, doesn't waste a single panel. And that doesn't just mean fight sequences, though, because we all know that Elena Casagrande, who is joined by Rafael de la Torre in this issue, we all know that Elena is one of the best out there when it comes to depicting those sort of visceral fight sequences that makes this book so special. But beyond that, the book is so packed with emotion. So every punch, every kick, every fight, you're feeling it not just on that visceral muscular level, you're feeling it on an emotional level. So my 
Pelly Poll List Award goes to this entire creative team, but it also goes to Matt and Yelena, who I think provide such a wonderful magic to the heart of this story. But uh, if you're not convinced by me word barfing just about issue number nine, go listen to our entire like hour long mm-hmm. conversation where Ryan and I squealed about how great this series is to writer Kelly Thompson on a recent episode of Pullist. Everybody, go throw all your money at your local comic shop, please, because <laughs> some good ass books. Uh, yeah, Daredevil number 32 out this week. I'm giving my Pelly Pullist award to Mike Hawthorne, the artist here, doing some amazing work. And the way he draws eyes and facial features and expressions is always, it's a ding dang delight to see him do it. You go from a shot of like Wilson Fisk, who's looking like clearly vulnerable with Typhoid Mary. You go over and you get like kind of terror from Daredevil, the Electra Daredevil, because you also see Bullseye in this issue who is maniacal and truly terrifying. I think Mike does such a great job showing all the emotions that you need from characters here. It's friggin' great. Um, big, big issue for Daredevil here. I won't spoil anything about it, but um, the last page is a doozy. Oh, yeah. Uh, next up, we have Eternals number six. We talked about it on the show before the series came out and certainly when it started with issue number one. And what I'm talking about is Kieran Gillen's big, huge scope and plans for this series and the story that he's going to tell. With the Eternals, by their very nature, they demand that kind of story, I think. So here, we kick things off with really just wild, unexpected twists and turns that are just so incredible. And look, Esad Rabich is just a beyond words level master artist. But I want to give my play fullest award as well to colorist Matthew Wilson, who is so incredible. I think what makes a colorist like him so special is his malleability. It's his ability to transform himself, his work, to match a series, a character, an artist so perfectly. Uh, And then he pops up in here with these muted colors, this sort of muted temperature, a more watercolor, lighter palette. And it's just amazing. It's really one of those that I'm just amazed with every issue, just how they pull it off at such a high level. Hell yeah. Speaking of people working at a high level, let's look at Fantastic Four number 34. And it is wonderful, but I'm giving my Pelly Polist award to a sequence with Namor and Susan Storm in here, which the Namor... Invisible Woman connection will come up later in the episode in our conversation with Dwight Stahl. But there's a moment in here where um, Fantastic Four and Namor and and T'Challa and and some Wakandans, they're fighting against the forces of Doctor Doom in Latveria. And Reed has figured out a way to save the day. And so he's like, all right, I need Namor and Sue. I need you to go to work together and do something for me. Namor is like, fine, I'll do it. Because he's like, oh, I get to hang out with Sue. Reed's like, excellent work, you two. And Namor says, he's right. Look at how effortlessly we compliment one another, Susan, with each movement of ours ebbing and flowing into the next. And then Sue just says, Namor, I'm married with two kids. (laughs) And Namor's like, I don't care at all. He's like, I'm here for Sue Storm. I love it. It's great. So much good stuff this week. And it continues with Mighty valkyries number four and as usual this issue is comprised of two different stories the jane story and the runa story uh, i want to give my Pelly pull list award though to thorin gronbeck friend of the show one of the coolest most talented people out there we obviously know how great a storyteller Thorin is and what a command of character she has and everything like that but it's also Something I think we talked about when we had Thorin on the show, and that's another episode that I would highly recommend if listeners haven't heard, go back and listen to. That was a really, really fun one. But it's a command that Thorin has of also the sort of mythos and the lore aspect of everything. The bigger, beyond bird's eye view storytelling that feels like it's being told across the ages. I don't mean that in terms of like, oh, this is a cosmic story, so it's big. It feels bigger in terms of this myth that's being told about these characters. So the moments that we get tied to those big storytelling beats 
combined with the intimate moments is really the magic of this series. And I think it's done so wonderfully by Thorin. Obviously, we have another Mattia D. Ulyss special um, that is just a feast for the eyes uh, in the Jane story here, but uh, some really, really nice pacing and balance in this issue in particular that I really enjoyed. Yeah. All right, let's go to uh, sword number seven. We are into the last annihilation. Dormammu has taken over Ego, the living planet, and it is terrifying. This book feels so big. This storyline feels so big. I would love to give my Peli Polist Award to Abigail Brand, who does some really intense things in this issue, but I am giving it to my Dinner with Doom, as Storm and Victor Von Doom have a little dinner on the planet Araco, and it is just great dialogue by Al Ewing, and it is exquisitely drawn by Stefano Caselli. I, I know Storm casts lightning, but you could feel the electricity. You cut it with a knife. Oh, yeah. Uh, next up, we have Shang-Chi, number three. Uh, and this is the ongoing story of Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe. I love it because we get one great character moments, but two, and this is specifically, it's my Peli Polist award, a showdown between Shang-Chi and Wolverine. Two characters who literally could not have more different fighting styles. One is just all sweat and muscle and just pugnacious attitude. And Shang-Chi, the other is finesse and skill. And this is really, really fun. I think this is exactly what I love to see. I love to dive into those very specific details, those character-led details that we wouldn't normally get to see outside of a story like this. So it's really, really fun. All right, it's time for some Star Wars with Star Wars number 15. We are still in the War of the Bounty Hunters, but this issue, we've got Luke Skywalker, we've got Starlight Squadron, and we've got my Peli Polist Award recipient, Wedge and Tilly's. Our flyboys are getting <laughs> out there and getting into the mix in the, the War of the Bounty Hunters as uh, things are really heating up. Oh, yeah. And now we're continuing on with Star Wars, as we so often do, with Star Wars The High Republic number seven. The High Republic era is still an era that is like in its infancy in terms of our exploration of it. So my Pelipolis Award goes out to Kevin Scott and George Shanti, who are the writer and penciler on this issue, for bringing those things to life. It really feels so vivid, so specific. Uh, and I think the locales that we see, the characters that populate it in uh, The High Republic number seven, I think it's just a perfect example of that. Yeah. We've got Symbiote Spider-Man Crossroads number one. This is the beginning of the fourth Symbiote Spider-Man limited series. Peter David telling classic Spider-Man stories when he was wearing the Symbiote costume. It's funny. It's pithy. It moves very quickly. Uh, art by Greg Land. Like everything about it clicks. I'm going to give my Peli Pullist Award to the Magnificent Moondark, a just schlubby little magician in the Marvel Universe who... Right place, right time, kind of wrong place, wrong time at the same time, and gets involved in this storyline. But the crossroads here are the infamous crossroads that Hulk was cast to years and years ago. Um, so now Symbiote Spider-Man is also there, and it's going to be wacky and wild. And I mean, look, we know Peter David is just seemingly having a ball with these, and it, it shows. Great stuff there, and great stuff on the way in the United States of Captain America Number two, a book that's making waves in all the right ways. It is a new look at the mantle of Captain America and what that means, who can pick up the shield, all of that kind of stuff. And it really gets to these subtle differences between Steve, between Sam, between any of these characters that we're spending this limited series exploring so there's really, really great stuff here, as well as the introduction of Nichelle Wright, who's the Captain America of Harrisburg in here. Another one of our new local caps, who is a great character. So uh, shout out to the entire creative team involved in this book. And uh, my Peli Polist Award goes to that group of incredibly talented people. Great stuff. Heck yeah. All right. Last new book of the week is Wolverine number 14. This feels like just a classic solid Wolverine comic in all the best ways. It's Wolverine going to Madripoor, investigating some stuff, getting down, getting dirty, popping the claws, threatening some people, cutting some people, fighting pirates. 
It's what I want. It also, I'm going to give my Pelipolis award to the introduction of a new Arakian mutant, the character Sever Blackmore. It's got a gnarly look that Adam Kubert just, Adam Kubert's up because Adam's the best and he makes him look friggin' awesome and huge and scary. And I can't wait someday to get a Marvel Legends figure of this dude. It's great. Really, really cool. So much good stuff this week. And that's not even to mention the collections as we look over there. We have Captain America Epic Collection, The Captain. Um, we have Volume 2 of Reign of X. Uh, and we also have a clutch of King and Black stories as Avengers, Gwenum versus Carnage, and Thunderbolts, three King of Black tie-ins that I remember enjoying very, very much. So a bunch to dive into over there. Yeah, over on Marvel Unlimited, um, the second issue of the Alien series is in there, issue 28 of Captain Marvel. But I really want to say, like, a bunch of the books that we've talked about have issues in Marvel Unlimited this week. Eternals number four, Sword number five, Mighty Valkyries number one. Like, those books you can check out a couple of issues to test the waters before you start buying and catching up with the new issues. And uh, Way of X number one, which we really, really liked. So that is on Marvel Unlimited this week. Uh, Now, a couple minutes ago, I mentioned Marvel Legends. Well, it is time to talk a little bit about Marvel Legends with our guest, Mr. Dwight Stahl. Tucker, remind me once again, what are we talking about with Dwight? We're talking about a bunch of great Fantastic Four stuff all surrounding Galactus. So if you're reading along on MU, go check out Fantastic Four 242 through 244. And we also have FF 257 and FF 261 and 262. It's real good. Let's get into it with Dwight right now. All right, Tucker, put on your big purple skirt because it's time to talk (laughs) some Galactus with our guest this week from the hallowed halls of Hasbro, Mr. Dwight Stahl. Dwight, how you doing? Doing great, Ryan. How are you guys doing today? I'm purplicious. Tucker, what about you? (laughs) Uh, I'm hungry. I think that's the best way to put it. (laughs) Yes, we are. We are talking about uh, big purple pants Galactus here. Because, Dwight, y'all over on the Marvel Legends team and over at Hasbro have recently launched the uh, HasLab campaign for Marvel Legends Galactus. And so for our reading club this week, we wanted to have you on. We want to talk about some Galactus comics. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about Marvel Legends Galactus and the campaign? Yeah, uh, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, we just kicked it off on July 16th, and it runs for 40-plus days. I think the campaign will wrap up on August 30th. And over that window, you guys have the opportunity to uh, be part of our HasLab, which is a 32-inch fully articulated Galactus action figure. So previous Galacti were in that 16 to 18 inch range, I think somewhere in that ballpark. So this thing is just massive and dwarfs them by far. We've already got a great amount of people that jumped on right away from the beginning. And we, you know, are hoping to achieve the uh, goal, which is 14,000 units to officially back it to Greenlight Galactus to make him a reality. And then past that, we've got a handful of stretch goals, which we haven't announced to the public yet, but those will be getting uh, teased out there, uh, I would imagine, in short order once that uh, 14K is met. And then there'll be some extra little bonuses for all of you awesome Marvel fans who uh, do support it. This feels like one of the things you have to do. If you're someone in your job, in my opinion, you have to take this character that's known for being enormous and then make a real life enormous version of it. I mean, it's a match made in heaven. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Toy Biz uh, set an amazing precedence uh, back in the day when they made their, was it the very first Build-A-Figure? Was that Galactus or was that the second one? And it was massive at the time. I mean, it was huge, towered over your action figures and, We wanted to pay homage to that, but we knew we had to go way, way, way bigger, especially coming after the super successful HasLab of last year, which was the Sentinel, which was uh, 26 inches. He has to be bigger, right? I mean, (laughs) at least least a little bit, right? It it has to be a more impressive thing. 
I'm very excited. I don't have my Sentinel yet. I know you've taken your Sentinel and your Galactus and you get all the figures early, which is what you do because you are senior product manager at Hasbro. But like I'm champing at the bit to take Sentinel, put them on a shelf, try to figure out, all right, that shelf is too small. Where do I put them? Um, I was able to join you and Dan Yun and friend of the show, Jesse Falcon, on the reveal at the live stream, the Fan First Friday for Hasbro. Anybody can watch that at uh, youtube.com slash Hasbro Pulse. So thank you for that. And on that, the live stream, we talked about some Galactus comics. We've, of course, talked about the first appearance of Galactus and Silver Surfer from Fantastic Four 48 through 50, which is, it's legendary. But we do have some some really cool Fantastic Four comics around Galactus to talk about this episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about the trial of Galactus, which is funny. Galactus isn't isn't kind of the one on trial by the end of it. Now, when when y'all were developing this Marvel Legends Galactus, were you looking at comics? Were you looking at any specific storylines? What were sort of the reference points? Yeah, we kind of do a little bit of all of that. We look at past toys that have been made. We look at comic book reference. The challenge with comic book reference is when you have a character that's existed as long as Galactus, it's evolved over many, many stages for its entire time. And that is not just in the pages, depending on what artist was drawing him. But he also has made appearances into some very uh, pop-centric video games of late. And each of those looks is a little bit different as well and more modernized in those cases. And with the Sentinel that we just made last year, which was heavily inspired by the House of X Powers of Ten series, we wanted to make sure that Galactus looked like he belonged in the same universe as that Sentinel. So we took some of the books we're going to talk about today. We took kind of a John Burns scale of Galactus from that run as like a really good guide. Because when we were trying to figure out how big does he need to be, he could be six feet tall. He could be 10 feet tall or larger, right? Depending on which version you wanted to go at, at what level of his power level is he? And we thought kind of that burn uh, run was a really solid height for us that matched the scale of him in comics. But then we added a little bit more modern flair to some of his elements. We hope we stayed true enough that the fans of all the uh, classic 60s to 80s books will still be okay with it but we you know we kind of added just a little bit of extra tech a little bit extra detailing to him because once you get this thing home like i said it's 32 inches this guy is massive so there's a lot of space on him that you could put in a lot of details and textures that otherwise might look a little bit empty if you went with one of those purely classic comic looks which were a lot cleaner and smoother so that's kind of where we got to pull from so dwight We're going to get into plenty of Galactus stories as we go here, but to dip a little bit into the Dwight story, where'd you grow up? And then uh, I'm curious about your background and interest from a very young age in either comics or toys or both. So where did it all start for you? Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Growing up in the early 80s, G.I. Joe had everything that I wanted. It had a, a cartoon that was on five days a week, right? It had vehicles, it had figures, it, it had that whole universe, right? That was spelled out in toy form, in cartoon form, and in Marvel Comics form. So when you put all three of those things together, you always had a constant drip of awesome G.I. Joe storytelling being, you know, plugged into you. And those are the toys that still mean the most to me as an adult, even though I I love modern toys better than the classic stuff because I'm a designer as well. So I always want to improve and grow on that. But those original toys were just, it was fantastic. And then I guess in the early 90s, my best friend uh, Drew and I found a hobby store and we went into it. And the first thing we went into the door was the rack of comics. And first thing popping out was uh, Uncanny X-Men. And that's when Uncanny X-Men was coming out twice a month. And I started reading comics in two directions. I would try to find back issues to find out what I don't know yet. And then I would obviously, once that point hit, I kept reading going forward. And uh, X-Men was by far my favorite book. I had a little bit of Iron Man when I was uh, younger and just some some random things like uh, She-Hulk or Spider-Woman or just some odd things. But X-Men was just, the stories were so engrossing. The art was 
absolutely amazing and there was nothing better. So it was like, you know, and coming out twice a month, you didn't have to wait long to get another amazing story to tell. I never really watched the uh, X-Men animated cartoon, which I know a lot of people love and still rave about today. Uh, and I remember it, but I don't actually remember actually sitting down and watching it too much. I'm a little bit older, so my era of uh, afternoon television was like G.I. Joe and Transformers, things like that. You're too cool for the X-Men. I get it. Um, <laughs> I want to go back to Joe and uh, collecting because... As a kid, I loved Marvel comic, like superhero stuff. I didn't read G.I. Joe comics for or Transformers comics for whatever reason. But from a toy standpoint, I love G.I. Joe and Transformers more than like any other toy lines. I, I also love what you said, Dwight, about how like we love these the old figures, the things that we grew up with, and there's a nostalgia to them. But looking at what is being made now by you on the Marvel Legends team, by some of the other, you know, toy makers and, and designers out there, it's like we are in such a wonderful place for like enjoying toys these days. Yeah, I mean, and the, the toys we played with looked like, you know, half melted bars of soap, right? <laughs> but nowadays with the molding process we have, the uh, scan data that we receive from, you know, our partners is like, you know, when you're doing something from like a film or a show, there's still, and I don't, I don't ever want to understate the amount of effort that the sculptors and, and the creatives that go into actually translating that data into something that can be manufactured. But, you know, it's like, it's a massive leap forward when you're like, yeah, of course this looks like this person because we got a really good cheat sheet to help us get a, you know, ahead of the game. I did a project earlier this year that I can't talk about yet. And they put me in the truck where they scan you. Nice. <laughs> so I'm just putting this out there, Dwight. If you need <laughs> a full 3D scan of me for any future action <laughs> figures, one does in fact already exist. <laughs> Dwight, I was curious because we've spoken with another member of the Marvel Toys team and gear team and, and friend of the show, Jesse Falcon. I interviewed Jesse once upon a time for my oral history of Hulk hands, which is a <laughs> long form journalistic deep dive into how Hulk hands came to be. Hulk hands, I, you know, for someone my age and I think for millions of people people is such a touchstone item. Looking back to your childhood, does a specific toy, a specific launch or release or something like that come to mind for you as like the thing that I was most excited to bring home? Does anything come to mind for you? The two toys that always stand out in my brain that I love the most that were action figure form was the Cobra Hydrofoil and the uh, ATST from Empire Strikes Back. Mm. I mixed all my toys. It's like there was, you know, my, my Star Wars figures, my Dungeons and Dragons figures, my G.I. Joe and Transformers. All of that stuff could get together and, and battle it out. I love it. Yeah. Let's dive into uh, the comics that we're talking about. We have a smattering of issues from the original Fantastic Four run, issues 242, 243, and 244. And we skip ahead to 257, and then we finish up with 261 and 262. Major credit, of course, goes to our producer, Jasmine. She figured out the best issues for us to talk about here because there's this Galactus saga that goes on. This is what, like a year and a half, two years almost, of storytelling across the Fantastic Four run at the time. It is written and penciled and, for the most part, inked by John Byrne, colors by Glennis Ween, letters by Jim Novak. Tucker, had you read these before? No, I hadn't. Specifically, as we dive into it with issue 242, I was super excited to read a Terax story. Uh, I was really, really pumped for that. But no, this is the first time I read it. And to get like a holiday and snow on the Baxter building and stuff like that was just an <laughs> extra bonus. Oh my God, it made me so happy. Uh, Dwight, you know, in reading comics back in the day, did you dabble in Fantastic Four and like during the burn run? No, no, I did not. Um, when I was reading backwards from the X-Men and I got to the Claremont and Byrne era of X-Men, that's when I learned who those two gentlemen were. And I just left it there because I was just so focused on X stuff. And then when we started having these conversations and we started looking at where we were going to go with Galactus was the first time I took an actual peek into the late 70s, early 80s for Fantastic Four. This was my first time actually diving into anything like in classic Fantastic Four. When I started on Marvel in 2006, 2007, you guys were awesome. And you guys were always sending us these massive piles of books every month. And that's when I was reading literally everything I could get my hands on. 
but this was my first time actually going back. And since then, I've just I've just kept reading because it's so good. And it's like there's so much I just don't know about. You guys kind of set me down a path that'll uh, hopefully uh, keep me busy for the next, uh, you know, uh, half a year because uh, there's plenty of books to get caught up on the app. Yeah. Yeah. Marvel Unlimited gives you access to over 28,000 comics and it's a treasure trove. You know, reading this, I was like, this is rad, but man, it is a wordy first issue. 242 (laughs) is like dense. There's so much dialogue, so much exposition, so much setup of various different things, which is sort of like part and parcel for the time. I think a lot of our maybe younger readers don't understand, like you couldn't get every comic, every month guaranteed. It was very difficult. So you had to play to the fact that, all right, you might get a kid or someone who picks up this book at their 7-Eleven or their local you know, store off a rack and hasn't read the last three issues, may not get the next issue. Like there's a little bit of extra handholding you need to put into these issues that was kind of like necessary for the time. <laughs> I also, it's, it's friggin' John Byrne. Like I love watching him draw clothes and hair. There are some side characters in here, friends of Johnny Storm's, and like <laughs> the theater, the theater friends. The hair is amazing on those those ladies in that book with the giant glasses. The hairstyles are fantastic. Oh, it's <laughs> so good. It, it was funny reading two forty two because, at least in super recent Marvel comics history, it brought to mind. King in Black a little bit because the whole issue, like, I I feel like it doesn't stop. It's forward movement towards something. And at the end, we learn that that something is Galactus, but it just feels like everyone is sprinting towards this thing the entire time. And I really, really enjoyed that momentum of it. I wasn't expecting this, but it ends up being like a big, giant sort of team-up story in here because that whole issue is sort of about... Iron Man and Thor and Spidey and Daredevil shows up like all these characters, you know, coming together at the same time, which I was surprised by and and, and obviously loved. There's a moment, I th- think it's 242 or 243, because Terax basically pulls up the island of Manhattan and <laughs> is like, uh, I'm going to throw this whole island at Galactus' ship unless you guys kill Galactus. And so he takes the island, and Tucker, you're right. It feels like this forward momentum, big, scary, weird, intense thing. It all happens in the pages of Fantastic Four. There's a moment where Daredevil and Spider-Man are like, should we do something? And they're like, no, 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 no. This is out of my league. I'm just going to watch. And he's like, all right, let's just hang out here. Yeah. I love that moment as well because Daredevil's like, that's some tussle going on down there. And it's like, yeah, man, the whole island has been lifted off of the earth. Like, yeah, stuff is going down. Great senses. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) And and I like the, uh, was it Sue saying, she's like, I just kind of keeping the thing cloudy so people don't see what's going on out there or everybody would like lose their mind. So, you know, it's like, that's an interesting power set. You know, you just (laughs) keep it, you know, steady as she goes, everybody. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. I appreciate that they kept it level, that even though they lifted the island up, (laughs) nobody noticed that they were taken out of Earth's atmosphere at all. The first issue is a lot of setup. 243 is like, boom, action, 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 wild, big moments. The Fantastic Four finally go to Galactus' ship and... I love the idea that Galactus, to your point, Dwight, about the Marvel Legends Galactus, his power is lower, so he's smaller. And they address that here. And then I think that's such a smart way to address the fact that Galactus is drawn in different sizes at different times. It's like this entity becoming so, so big, you know, at times where he's almost the size of the planet. And times when now in here, like... I'm looking at a panel where Reed is almost to Galactus's knee, which is pretty small for Galactus. I love the moments in here where you get the Kirby look to some of these little moments. Like it's that weird device that they put Galactus inside of in 244 to save him. It's not just about the texture or the way the lines move on that. It's literally how it consumes the page in a certain way, how the angles fall across the panel, how you can see the the 3D 
perspective on the whole thing. It's just really, it's, it's really cool. I love that as well because it sort of allows us to go into, there's another great moment, the next page that's a little bit, not abstract, but like 1980s weird in, in, a, in a certain way. <laughs> like it, it goes to the opposite where it's like, it's a little more sort of 2D then as it's like almost getting like an X-ray or something of Galactus's body. I love that whole sequence. And that only comes second place to like the awesome uh, 1980s aerobics that we get in that issue for me. Oh my God, <laughs> the talent and the amount of time that must have gone into inking all that ridiculous detail. And it's so beautiful. And the colors are so, not primitive, but it's big blocky colors. It's not, you know, tons and tons of, shading and, and all that other it, it's just so crisp and clean and beautiful such wonderful art they really are and i think one thing to remember is this is before digital coloring so you know you have the primary colors and you know the sort of limitations but the limitations you know burn can then like sort of dive into really detailed stuff in one panel and then just use like you know glennis we're going to just color the background one shade in the next panel and it works because it sort of fits with the aesthetic of the book. It allows to, you know, them to do some stuff. Like I'm looking, yeah, one of these panels of inside Fantastic Four headquarters and Galactus is like peering over and he's like, what are you doing in there? <laughs> the level of detail of the machinery in this middle of the page panel is wild. Uh, this issue 244 has an important piece. I think to me, I read a lot of Silver Surfer in the 90s and the character of Nova, Frankie Ray, she was a herald of Galactus. She had cosmic power. She was really cool. I didn't know anything about her. Yeah, same same thing, man. Until this, I was like, oh, that's how she came to be. Yeah. I had read the story in which she got her initial flame powers and then I had never read this story in which she became the herald of Galactus. And I like it because she's just like, look, if I have to cause a world to get destroyed, whatever, no big deal for me. I don't care. I want to see the universe. And even Galactus is like, too many of these dumbass heralds, they're too evil or they're too good. She just wants to have fun. Like, <laughs> let's roll. And Galactus is like, beep, boop, 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 beep. You're now a herald. Go find me some food. And I just, the whole sequence there, I was like, this could have been turned into a whole issue. But instead, it's three pages. It is concise. I like that a lot. It's really nice to see this story, not the issue, but the story sort of land on these emotional family like beats, you know, where, where we're talking to Johnny and, and it's a pretty quiet ending to this story for what has been like an enormous, huge Galactus story closes in that first family way. It's just a great reminder of like, you know, the more epic and the more huge that the story gets, like the more intimate it also has to get. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Like they just battled through keeping Galactus alive and, and sending him back out. And at the end of it, Johnny's just like, but I lost my girl. <laughs> yeah. Johnny's the worst. Uh, yeah. This, that fo those first three issues are about Reed kind of saving Galactus's life and sort of making that choice to be like, well, Galactus is a being. He needs help. It's my duty to help him. He's, you know, like I can't just let him die, even though he, kills, you know, billions and billions and trillions of entities that would, it's just wrong for me to do it. And that's sort of propels the story that would culminate in almost two years later. But we, we skip ahead to 257 and the cover to 257 with the split face Galactus, like regular face and then skull is a beautiful cover. It's just really wonderful. And that first, you know, big opening splash page, Galactus looking a little like, you know, sort of like pouty look. I am dying. It's like, bam, it's really good. You then go from that very kind of simple one page splash and you open up to a two page, which is just stars and planets and vibrant colors and so much going on. I think this is a reminder of just like John Byrne knew what the hell he was doing when he was <laughs> making comic books. I love the inner exposition that you get out of this era of books too, but I don't think you see it very much anymore. It's like where they go into the details of what the characters are thinking or how the character has to explain something to the audience to fill in a gap to your point, Ryan, of what happened, you know, a while ago. It's kind of cheesy, but it's really fun. And it totally ties you to this era of the books where it's like, you know, 
oh, and Sue's, you know, doing this, but then you just have her like thought, you know, explaining whatever the situation in such a weird way, because no one would think like that, but the way that they, you have to tell that story, it just feels warm and it feels good. You know, it's like, oh yeah, it's, it's just, it's a staple to the era. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I also love in here, scraggly beard Reed. That's real nice. <laughs> What I love about that is he's got that beard. He looks all gnarly. This is just coming off the heels of a big negative zone story. And my favorite part in that bit where they, they've come back and they're getting checked out by the doctors, making sure that Franklin is okay. And they find out that Sue is pregnant and Ben is so excited. He's like, yeah, you guys were doing something more than exploring in the negative zone. <laughs> it's I laughed really hard at that one. I thought that was like really well done. It was really cute. Um, they're also in this issue, very important in the recent run of Marvel storylines. We had Empire and um, we know that the like sort of the destruction of the Skrull throne world was really important for a part of those reasons that, you know, if you think about Secret Invasion, that was a, the destruction of the throne world was, was crucial to that. Um, you think about Young Avengers and Teddy in there. It's all an important part of Marvel history. And this is here where you get to see it, where you see Galactus basically almost exterminate the entire race of Skrulls. The part that was real wild to me, which is not in really any of the retellings, is Nova's part in it, where she destroys their armada immediately and leaves <laughs> leaves the planet open for Galactus to come down and take a little bath. What was your take on that part of this issue? It was weird, right? I mean, from my point of view, it was like there was like some malicious intent there. It's like because they were they were cloaked, right? Basically, they, they had figured out a way to hide. But because uh, Nova knew where it was, she was just like, oh, I know where there's some real space jack wagons. Follow me, you know, and <laughs> she goes flying out there and then just like, oh, oh, man. It's like she she did not like them very much. There's so many funny things. I feel like. There are so many like kind of meme humor moments with Galactus that I love. And one of them is definitely, Ryan, like you said, that opening page, I am dying, which I think is inherently funny. And then there's another one in there where Galactus is sort of like sinking like beneath and his eyes are just sort of popping over the horizon kind of. And it's just, he's just kind of like quietly going away in a really hilarious, like unintentionally hilarious manner. Um, there were so many great things like that. Maybe it's just the grand nature of Galactus that any moment where he seems to be undermined by like such like a human, like goofy moment, it really crushes me. My favorite is after he's feasted and he's in his like yeah, yeah, his yeah. food coma <laughs> and uh, his tattoo, his ship comes out and there's a panel and says, and gently as a mother tends her babe in arms, mechanical limbs extrude and draw in the floating figure that is Galactus. <laughs> and it puts him on a little bed and he's, his arms like hanging off. Yeah, I yeah. was like, it's so good. Yeah, it rules. It. it rules so hard. 257 leaves us there. There's a Doctor Doom story because there's always a Doctor Doom story. Byrne really did a bunch of Doctor Doom stories, which I guess makes sense. Who doesn't want to tell Doctor Doom stories uh, if you're playing with the FF? But that leads us to 261, sort of the end of the Galactus part of things. And it's the Search of Reed Richards, which has, once again, an opening baller <laughs> splash page, which is Pregnant Sue Storm getting smoochy smoochy with namor it's such a diss like the search for reed richards yeah nice sue like that's a great search you're on it's such a hilarious juxtaposition of text and image it's so good and i love that we get a cool power for silver surfer where he can basically like all right turn your backs i'm gonna do something really weird and scarlet witch and sue storm have to like look away while he basically does like a 3D scan of the area and reverses time to figure out what happened to Reed Richards. His, uh, his uh, CIA power. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to point out, at this point in the Burniverse, this is Fantastic Four 261. He's doing Alpha Flight and Thing and Fantastic Four. At the same time, two of those, he's writing and drawing, which is wild. And then as we get into 262... Who is one of the supporting stars, but 
John Byrne. <laughs> that is absolutely wild. What a crazy issue. It's this weird thing where Byrne, he is the chronicler of the Fantastic Four in the Marvel Universe doing this job of telling their stories. And he just happens to put himself and his wife and one of his editors <laughs> in the book for a large chunk of the story. <laughs> Dwight, where, where were you on this one? I had to go back to the cover. I'm like, did I miss something? I was reading these. I'm like, wait a minute. It was the first time in any of the run that I've read of his stuff that anything like that had happened. So it was like, huh, what? Yeah, I, I love it. I love the cojones to do it. I love the chutzpah. He is a superstar. So this is what he wants to do. Boom. Yeah. And this last issue, 262, is the trial of Reed Richards because the universe basically puts him on trial for not letting Galactus die. And Reed's like, yeah, I'm guilty of saving somebody's life. What of it? And he like basically degeneration X crotch chops the, the entire <laughs> universe and is like, deal with it. That's fantastic. It's crazy on its own. But then in the context of this story, which literally goes from, I guess, John Burns house in Evanston, Illinois, <laughs> to meeting eternity at the end of the issue the thing about it is, as we get towards like the culmination of this issue, this has such a grand, epic feel to it, not just in terms of the narrative, but in terms of the panel layout and how big these are. Like, There's that great page where there are all these little panels that are sort of dotted over top of Galactus. So cool. And you get something huge like that. You're like, this doesn't just feel like the end of this issue or arc. This feels like something even bigger than that. I love that page too, because to me, it's such an important character point for Galactus because that page basically says the way we view Galactus, our brains have conjured up a giant humanoid figure in purple, like gladiatorial kind of garb with a big antler helmet because that's just what we see. But every other alien race sees something different. We don't really get to see those other interpretations visualized so often. And that, to me, is maybe my favorite page of this run of issues that we've been reading. I love that page so, so much. I'm glad you brought it up, Tucker. And I can't let us wrap this up without talking about just how much I love that old Uatu guy. Love it. Love him. We'll read anything he's ever in. Just the greatest. Love this huge dome. <laughs> so good. Uh, all right. Yeah, we are back to talking about toys and action figures and Marvel Legends. Hit us with some of the, the finer details about Marvel Legends Galactus. What are some of like the, the pieces of them, points of articulation, that kind of thing? He's got like, yeah, I think he's made out of over 300 pieces. And I think he's around 70 points of articulation. Uh, all of his uh, digits actually move. Check out all the, all the fine details on uh, Hasbro Pulse. He is up for pre-order right now. I think he is at three ninety nine is the uh, going price, and uh, we get to fourteen thousand backers, we will make that monster a reality. So he also has LEDs in his uh, two different LED banks. One in his chest that uh, his chest lights, as well as a port on his back glows. So he's get he gets light on the front and the back, and then he's got all these different you know weird lantern shapes on his helmet and his eyes, and all that glows really really cool as well. Even his uh, rectangular like irises uh, are all sculpted in. So we really spent a lot of time uh, going over this guy, trying to get as much uh, comic lore put into him and give him the just treatment that the devourer of worlds deserves. So. Yeah. The three swappable faceplates can't miss that. Cause one of them is like the, the skull faceplate, which is gnarly as hell. Of course, there's a, a bonus. If you are a Marvel insider, you get 70,000 Marvel insider points and you get three digital comics. So you get to read the original Galactus trilogy. I think someone on the team already tweeted that the first tier is a six inch figure if we go past the 14,000. So, you know, there'll be other tiers that we're trying to reach more people back it, more things that we can unlock. I think we got some things in there that you'll probably expect to see. And then I think we have some things in there that you might have to dig a little bit deeper to find. So I think there's, I think there's a little bit of something in this program for everybody. And I hope we get to the point that all the tiers do get unlocked because I think there's a lot of fun stuff and with the face plates, especially the skull, I think that gives you a lot of flexibility. One, it just looks metal. It looks so cool. But, you know, it doubles as starving Galactus, 
Dead Galactus, Zombieverse Galactus. And depending on the talent of the photographer, you could even uh, rip the head off and call it the uh, Galactus engine from the Cancerverse if you can uh, get your guys small enough. So I think you got a little bit of a, a lot of things that you can do just with that one uh, faceplate as well. So there's some cool stuff. And then, yeah, there's a lot of heralds to choose from. So, you know, there might be a herald. There might be there might be more than one. So we'll have to wait and see. Dwight, thank you so much for, for coming and talking Galactus and Fantastic Four with us. Good luck with this. And um, just keep making awesome action figures for us, please. Yeah, man. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Tuck, for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Dwight. Big thanks once again to Dwight Stahl. Everybody, go order your Marvel Legends Galactus. Let's get this uh, funded. You know, we're well over halfway there uh, at the time of the recording. We'll be even further along by the time this episode comes out. But we need it. And especially we need all the tears because we know the tears now. And we can't tell <laughs> yeah, you about them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we can't tell you about them yet. So you just, you got to order yours. Find out. <laughs> oh, so good. That about wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And, you know, it's weird because Brad does not have 20 points of articulation in each <laughs> hand. Look, he's doing great with 15 in each hand. So that's 30 points of articulation at minimum he has in his body. Good for Brad. Good for you, Brad. Thumbs up, which I can do. He can't quite do, but he cannot do yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Sorry, Brad. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.